Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. So I don't know if you know this or not, but I lost the chili cook-off contest. I know you're super depressed for me right now, but it was a humbling experience, and I'll take that forward next year into the, coming into the chili cook-off and try not to be as prideful. But <laughs> it was such a fun time, man. We had a great time. Zach Puckett gave it up for him. He's the new champion. So uh, awesome. Awesome. There's, I, I don't remember, what is it, 19 chilies or something like that. Crazy. A lot of chilies, so a lot of fun. Uh, every year, always a great time. So, um, hey, just a couple things before we get going this morning. Uh, we are getting ready to go to two services. Uh, we are going to two services on um, December 5th. So service times will be 9 and 11 a.m., and we will host uh, children's ministry on the 11 a.m. service uh, for the time being until the Lord adds more people and we're able to have a, a second uh, children's ministry service. So uh, if you're not serving in the church somewhere, we'd love for you to be able to be connected. You can go to the Welcome Center and talk to somebody about what our needs are, or they'll connect you with somebody. You can talk to Pastor Mike, myself, one of the elders, Dave or, or uh, Randy. Well, Master, so love to have you get connected there. Um, also, you know, from time to time, we have people uh, come, and then we have people leave. And uh, so today, we're going to be praying off Brett Clark. He and his wife are moving to Tucson, Arizona. Where is Brett at? Brett, you come on up here real quick? Yeah, come on. <laughs> he you guys know Brett. He's super bashful, right? <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> But, uh, Say one good thing. But I love this guy so much, man. He's been a blessing to us here at the here at the body. He came at a time, you know. Honestly, when we were we were in a season of just kind of a little bit of wondering, like, what in the world is the Lord doing? And Brett was a great encouragement to me personally, great encouragement to our body. Uh, he served this body since the time he got here, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing what the Lord's going to do with you in Costa Mesa. We're going to miss you, man. I'm from gonna, Costa Mesa. I mean, no, Tucson. We're, he's from Costa Mesa, but yeah, we're, we're looking forward to seeing what the Lord's going to do with you down there via Costa Mesa back to Tucson. So, But yeah, his wife is already there, so she's gone. He gets the privilege of packing the stuff up, so... We'll pray for him now. Father, we thank you so much for our brother here and what a blessing he is to us. And we ask you, Lord, to just guide him and keep him, just be with him, he and Denise, on their new journeys in Tucson, Lord. We pray that you would plug them into the right church, Lord, that you would um, bless them in all their efforts, Lord, as they are the hands and feet of Jesus there in Tucson. And we just uh, ask you to continue to do the work through Brett that you've called him to, Lord. We ask for you to bless his health. We ask you to continue to uh, just be uh, with him and just as he ministered to those around him and uh, even through the different things that he, he is, you've allowed in his life to, for him to experience. We pray, Lord, that you just blessings be upon him now. We thank you, Lord, for Brett, for Denise. We ask you to pave the road forward for them and just bless them along the way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And uh, also, you know, from time to time, we have missionaries go out and come back. So we're going to have Dr. Sam come up and share with us uh, where he has gone to. He's come back, coming back from Brazil, and uh, he had a, such a blessed time there. And he wants, I want, I heard, he gave me an update last Wednesday, and I thought, man, why don't you share a few minutes about what the Lord did in Brazil 
and uh, so he's going to come up and, and share with us now. So would you welcome me, Dr. Sam Richardson. Thank you, sir. I lost my audio. <laughs> oh, wow. Praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank God for those pictures on the screen. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Am I audible? Can you hear me back there? Okay. Thank you. That's good to know. Pardon me a second while I get audible to myself here. And I'm a bionic man here trying to had to survive. Uh, yes, now I'm audible to myself as well. Very good. Praise God. Hallelujah. Uh, Susan, would you let me know when five minutes is up? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Praise God. Hallelujah. It's a privilege to be here today. Let me pray just one brief minute before we go. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, Brother uh, Romero, with Tim, Timothy Romero, and for Brother Mike Mondry, and Brian Thacker, and for Susan, and for all the people who interceded, and the Trimbos, and all the folks who, that group who, who interceded for me. Thank you, Father Lord. Thank you. Lord, thank you for this country. Thank you for the cleanliness that we have with sewer systems that prevent more illness than Dr. Treat, for clean water that, that prevents more illnesses than we can think of for all the blessings of their kindness in this country and liberty. We thank you and we humbly beseech you to make our hearts grateful for these things, Lord God, as we see them here in our heritage and be blessed by them. Lord, help us to be mindful of your kindness and, and beneficence toward this great land. Thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, thank you for missions. Thank you for YWAM. Thank you for the, the vision they have and what they're doing. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, in August and September of this year, I had the privilege of serving at a uh, YWAM training facility. Now, YWAM, Y-W-A-M, with Youth with a Mission. Naturally, it's different letters in different languages. Joachim, uh, Joachim in, in, in the Portuguese. In uh, Abetetuba, Brazil, it's in the state of Pará. And it's near the mouth of the Amazon River, and that thing goes up northeast toward the Atlantic, you know. And uh, this is all Brazilian ministry. There was one person who spoke English there, and she, she was the head. Her name was Eleni. And uh, they train YWAM young people in their 20s largely at, to, in evangelism. They need part of the training. The other training is done at other YWAM bases in that state. And uh, we had the privilege of sending uh, 14 of them out to uh, the deep uh, jungles of Brazil and uh, uh, after their training. But part of that training was going out to the river islands and the river people uh, and we went, I went with those and, 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 and helped there. Um, the uh, uh, mission trips to the river people and then was generally to the mouth of the Amazon River in my part. Uh, we went tri twice to Kapim Island, C-A-P-I-M, Kapim, and once to Akaraki, if I can pronounce it right, and then once to Kampompema. Uh, some of those trips, uh, as I said, were, were used for training uh, for YWAM. Uh, prior to COVID-19, there were many medical t 
teams they went down, but not since then. And that has uh, slowed some things down um, uh, in so many different ways. Uh, but nevertheless, the work goes on. And I want to report to you that the gospel is very much where here are the Wyoming's. You can see them going out on a mission on a boat. Uh, the gospel, and they are happy. Boy, I tell you, they're happy. That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is alive, well, and going forward in Brazil. I want to tell you that right now. <laughs> Many years ago, a man named Cunningham had a vision of young people going in waves, taking the gospel to countries all over the world. And that vision now has taken place, and they have bases throughout Brazil, and they are going for all Brazilian. This is an all-Brazilian operation, okay? Uh, I was the only American down there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And if you're not familiar with it, I urge you to pray for them and get familiar with it uh, because they're taking the gospel to the world, and they're an extension of the church. And that, that, uh, so now the finances from this particular base comes from the United States, but with the persecution of the churches in California, the finances have been a little tough right there lately uh, for them. Uh, but the uh, Calvary Chapel in, uh, churches in, in Florida and in California have been supporting them and been helping tremendously. Uh, this particular ministry is founded by Joseph Novello, and a great man, and worked uh, got me down there. Um, but it's totally in the hands of Brazilians. They, they are the ones that run it. Uh, and the testimony I gave down there was about how to pray for your neighbor. We went to a church that's out in the middle of the jungle, and that's um, a big bunch of stories I can tell you all in five minutes, but, but went to churches out there, and the, and the mission, that, the thing that I did with my testimony was to talk about how to pray. See, folks, prayer isn't just something we kind of do. Prayer is the main thing that we do. And I said, now, I said, I told, I'm talking to you like I talk to them, okay? I said, you pick out people in your neighborhood. You pick out people in this jungle that you know. You pick out the meanest man on this island if you can, and you pray for him. You go to God and ask for his salvation, and you go back to God every day for his salvation, and you 365 days out of the year, you go back to the Lord and back to him and say, Lord, I want this man's salvation. I want this man saved, Lord. Put it in my heart for compassion for this man, for this lady, for this child, this family. I dare you to do that here. I dare you to have ask God for compassion for that neighbor, that friend. I dare you to go before God and ask for it and ask for it. He taught us this. You read the scripture about prayer. He taught these things. And I dared them. We were out in the middle of the jungle with a little old church. Had been built. The, the, the lines of the brick were straight. He had a roof over our head, a big pile of dirt in the center of the front of the concrete floor. It was unfinished, and I said, this place is a great encouragement to me because somebody in that heat of this 94-degree average temperature weather put those block in place. Somebody put those things in the middle of the jungle, simply got church, and somebody put the roof on. Somebody worked. Somebody had a vision, and it was encouraging to me, and I told them that. And, and so uh, I challenged them in my brief testimony to go before God. Folks, 
kingdoms rise, governments fall and rise because of the prayers of the saints. This is where it's at. This is what happens. God is involved, and he will answer your prayer. Uh, and so we uh, got to go out and trade a few people and, and, and help and encourage. My job was to encourage the church, encourage the ministry that I had there uh, in uh, these places. And, uh, uh, you know, if you ever need an, an exercise in being thankful for what you have in the United States, go, to, go down there. They're fairly prosperous. They're not, not like Honduras. Honduras is poor. But they, in, 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 in Brazil, it's got some prosperity to it. They're very much like the United States in so many ways. But the, lie, the gospel is alive. It is going forward. It is going forth. It needs your help. And I ask you to pray for Brazil that the gospel will go forth, that lives will be changed, that hearts will be turned, that depth will follow, and this people get into the Word and be transformed to right, walk in a newness of life throughout by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray for Brazil. I ask you in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Hey, Susan, will you let me know when it's been about an hour and a half? Thank you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love to hear the, the, uh, the message that Sam came back with. Was, he said, dude, when, he didn't say dude, but, you know, that's what I said. <laughs> but he said, uh, when I sat down with these YWAMers, they prayed two hours every day. Two hours. And uh, that impacted him greatly. The, the, the amount of prayer, the time they spend in prayer, and it really, you know, kind of convicted my heart. I'm thinking, like, wow. Um, I think it was Martin Luther that said, you know, I have so much to do today that, that I need to spend three hours in prayer because it's through prayer that we should be doing everything. And, and I love the, that his, his message of praying for the least likely people in your neighborhood to, uh, you know, be saved. And, you know, if you want to be encouraged, even tonight, you know, somebody was praying, somebody was doing a work in Michael Wilder's life, who was a Mormon who became a Christian uh, on his Mormon mission to Orlando and trying to convert a Baptist preacher and his whole congregation to Mormonism, and he got saved. Somebody was praying for him. And his, he, he gave his heart to the, to the Lord, and then he began to pray for his whole family. They all came to Christ, and he's been used all over the United States, all over the world, to share the gospel with people. Um, so, you know, what I, what I tell you is, you guys know this prayer works. So I imagine our prayer service at 1.30 is going to be totally packed today, right? So, you know, what an encouragement, and continue to pray for Brazil. Also, be to remind you to continue to pray for Marty Vierhoff um, over in Awasi, Kenya, and the, the work that's going on there, and, and we'll get an update from Marty here probably next month, and kind of talk about some things that are going on there, but just continue to pray. Just be pray, praying people, amen? Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And we're continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Revelation. Stand with me once you have the text before you, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read our text. Jesus is speaking 
dictating to John who is writing these words. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your pa uh, patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you're not growing, you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the, saints, uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to come now and speak to our hearts. Open us up, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to be changed and transformed. We don't want to leave the same people. Lord, encourage, correct, exhort, rebuke this morning by your Spirit. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't know what you just prayed, do you? <laughs> so over the years, I've, I've had the privilege of um, officiating many weddings and uh, after much contemplation, thinking about the wedding ceremony and such like, what is the most important part of the wedding ceremony? It's the kiss, right? No, it's not, really. It's not the kiss. It actually is the vows. The vows are the most important part of a, where, of a wedding ceremony. It's where they come before God, these two people, and they come before all the witnesses that are assembled, and they promise each other things like this. It's for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish until what? Death do we part. Those are some serious promises. Like, th this is lifelong vows that you're making to this person that you are now connecting your life with. And you're doing it, if, you're, if you are doing it in the biblical sense of the word marriage, before the Lord, your commitment is to Him and then them. You're saying, God, I promise to do these things to this person. I want to be this to this person. And of course, we know that we can't do it on our own. We need the Lord's help. Why? Because human beings fail. But here's what's interesting about the vow is as you make that vow to that person, you promise them that you're going to be with them for, forever and ever. Then life happens, right? Circumstances come in your way. And what can end up happening is people say, oh, well, that was great for then, but it doesn't apply now. And, you know, the average uh, length of a marriage in America, do you know how long it is? Seven years. Maximum eight years. That's the average, um, you know, amount of time that a, a, normal, a normal marriage lasts. That's a far cry from until death do we part. You know, what were you saying to that person when you said it? Were you being real? Well, or was that just a momentary thing that was caught up in emotion? You know, the, these are serious moments when you're giving your life to this person before the Lord. 
You know, uh, there's a lot of different reasons people get divorced. Um, and uh, he here's the reality of it. None of them are, are um, good enough. None of those reasons are good enough to do it. And here's why. Because if the love of Christ fills your heart, then you love like Christ loves. And that's an interesting thing. And, and uh, of course, I'm not going to say there are zero circumstances that a person could get divorced because there's some biblical references to those things. And I also think if a person's life is in danger, of course, they're, they're, they're needs to be a, uh, they need to exit that situation. But the reality of it is people get divorced in our country because they say, what, I've fallen out of love. I no longer love this person like, like I once did. And uh, we know that that is an emotional response because love is a choice. Ask Steven Crowder, louder than Crowder, you know, change his mind on that. <laughs> love is a choice. And people don't fall out of love. They choose to stop loving. That's what happens. You know, circumstances come in our lives. Somebody says something to somebody else in, in the relationship and they get jaded and hurt. So you start to build up walls, and those scales, um, you know, kind of get in the way in between you and your spouse. And the next thing you know, you have, you don't really have any feelings for them, and sometimes they're negative feelings. You know, you've gone the, the total opposite direction. What happened? Well, you choose to stop loving. That's what happened. We choose to stop loving because, generally speaking, on a human level, we're, or we're, we're, we're conditional with our love. But God wants to show us that we need to be unconditional with our love, that he, he will continue to pursue us over and over and over again regardless of where we're at. You might be here this morning. You might be in a loveless relationship. You might be in a relationship with your spouse where they're not loving you like they're supposed to. So what do you do? Well, we're going to ask Jesus that question because that's exactly where he is with the church in Ephesus here, his loveless bride. He's going to show us how to deal with a loveless heart. You might recall from last week that the book of Revelation is divided up into three sections. Uh, chapter 1, uh, we find that the, the, really the divine outline in, in chapter 1 verse 19 where it says, write therefore these things that you have seen. Uh, those things that are and those things that have taken place after this. And we talked about last week that the very first part of that, right? The th therefore, the things that you have seen is what John saw in chapter 1. He's talking about Jesus and the revelation and just his experience there. He's written down his, what, the things that he's seen there, past tense. As you can see here now, we move into a different section of the book of Revelation where he is now to write the things that are. This is present tense. This is John now writing down to seven literal churches that exist in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and, and he's writing these letters. Jesus is speaking these words to the church that exists in that time. This is present time. This is Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Then we see in Revelation chapter 4, we see uh, this is where the, the section changes to the last part of it, which is 
the things that are to take place after this. And we find there in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, after this, after what? After Jesus spoke to these seven churches, I look and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then so from that point forward, then we have the third section of the divine outline of the book of Revelation. The Revela Revelation is divided up for us. It's the only book of the Bible, folks, that has the outline for us already put together. It's not like we have to figure that out. We can try and get super creative and make all kinds of other things, you know, throughout the process, but I like to just keep it simple because I'm a simple guy. And uh, Jesus did it for us, so we just stick with that. So here's the thing is, the way that the, these letters now, as we move into this section of the things that are, Jesus uh, speaking to these churches, he also has a very simple outline as it relates to these letters. They're all sort of, they're very similar in the way that Jesus speaks to these churches. And so here's how he addresses them. First, he addresses this correspondent. We'll see, to the angel of the church of whatever church it is. He's speaking to the correspondent there. Then he gives a commendation, the things that they're doing right. Then a correction, the things that they're doing wrong. A command, how they move from the things that they're doing wrong to, to make those things right. And then there's generally a conditional promise at the end of it. And so that's how these letters will be divided up as we go through them. Jesus begins in this letter here to the church of Ephesus with uh, a, an address to the correspondent. You look at verse 1 there, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And again, you might recall last week, we talked about that word angel. It's, it's in the Greek, it's um, angulos, and it literally means messenger. That's what the word means. Now, it could mean angelic being. We see that word used as actually presenting angelic beings in heaven that come down or whatever, but it generally also means just a messenger. And I gave you some examples of that last week. It's unlikely that Jesus is speaking to an, an, a literal angelic being here because of what he says. First and foremost, Jesus doesn't need John to write to an angel. That doesn't make sense. But in case it does make sense to you, then the other part of that that doesn't make sense is that he tells them to repent. And the only angels that need to repent are what? Fallen angels, and they can't repent because they've been in the presence of the Lord. There is no salvation for a fallen angel. And so it, it seems to make sense that Jesus is speaking to, to the pastor or to a leader here of the church. Now, traditionally, church tradition tells us that at this present time, it's very probable that the person that is pastoring the church of Ephesus right now is none other than Timothy. Remember, we just went through First and Second Timothy. We talked about Paul exhorting Timothy to be the man that he's called to be and to do all of those sorts of things. And Timothy was kind of timid and, and, and all of that. Well, we know that he went to Ephesus. We know that he became the pastor of Ephesus. What we don't know is where he died. He died somewhere in that process. We also know probably that John was in Ephesus when he got arrested, uh, you know, by Domitian. And then he, then he was boiled in a cauldron of uh, hot oil. And then, because he didn't die, he sent him to Patmos. 
So Timothy is probably still the pastor there. Many people believe he died, um, you know, in, in AD 97 or so after John, some, somewhere around the time frame when John would, would have been released from the island of Patmos. So perhaps this letter is to Timothy and the Lord's, Lord's speaking to Timothy there. And it's interesting as we walk through this, the exhortation, the commendation that the Lord gives to this church is amazing. It's something that we would all want to hear from Jesus. But unfortunately, the correction is so brutal because it's really the foundation of Christianity, folks. And so we're going to walk through these things. We know Jesus is speaking because he identifies himself here as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who, who is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And again, all we have to do is use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 20, you look there with me. It says this, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Jesus identifies for us who it is that, he, that these symbols, what they mean. And it's Jesus speaking there. So Jesus is telling John that it's, it's him. He's identifying himself to the church, to his bride in Ephesus, and he's telling him, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. This is important because what it tells us is that Jesus is holding the leadership, the messengers, the people that are in the churches in his hand. That's a kind of a twofold idea. Number one, it's a comforting idea as a pastor to know that I'm being held by Jesus, that he has me in his hand because I need to be in his hand. Because what I'm doing is a spiritual situation and I have no capacity to do what I'm called to do if I'm not in Jesus' hand. And I, I don't want I don't want to be outside of Jesus' hand. I need to be right in the center, in the palm of his hand. So there's a great comfort in that for me personally. But there's also, this is speaking of sort of the, 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 the control, the authority that Jesus has over the churches. He's the head of the church. The messenger is, is in his hand. He's simple messenger. He's, he's sent forward to spread a message that Jesus has given to him. He does not have the authority to say whatever he wants to say and do whatever he wants to do. Why? Because he's under the authority of Jesus Christ. He's in his hand. Jesus could squish him like a bug if he wanted to. How comforting. The reality of it is that Jesus, um, Jesus is telling us that, that those who are his messengers aren't free to do whatever they want to do. That also includes you. And that's why we have to be very careful about the conversations we have with people and the words that we speak to people, the, the, you know, how we represent Jesus. And, you know, he will, he will use his authority in our lives at times to show us, like, whoa, don't do that. Don't speak like that. Don't represent me like that. You're misrepresenting me. What are you doing? And he will do things like that because he wants to be represented well. Pastor Chuck, when he was speaking about the minister and his job, uh, he said this. He said, ministry is not a lordship, but a service. The business of the minister is to hear for the church, which has been committed to his care. He is to receive the word from the mouth of the Lord and to deliver it faithfully to, to his church and to see, speaking of Jesus, and to see that it's accepted and observed. The minister's job is one in which he ha he's sort of a, you know, a, 
kind of a go-between between the Lord and the church. He's, he's to take what God tells him and give it back out. Thankfully, we, we, we have what's already written here, and we do this every week. We give it out. We give what the Lord has to say to us through the Word of God. But it's a ministry that requires continual bowing before the Lord and receiving what the Lord has uh, for you because we're to receive the message from the Lord and then give it back out. We need, we are so dependent on the Lord. You have to be so dependent on the Lord. Um, but here's the thing. I don't know why in our culture we put these people on pedestals. Why do we prop up pastors and ministers and such like they're, you know, just not ordinary people who are just assigned the job that the Lord has given them? It is an oxymoron to give a pastor or a messenger glory. Do you know that? Why? It would be like going into a restaurant and getting this incredible meal delivered to you on your table and you're like, whoa, this is fantastic and you're praising the waiter. He has nothing to do with it. He simply took the, the meal that the chef prepared and laid it on the table. That's the pastor in the church. Do not give man glory. You give the Lord all the glory. He deserves the glory. We live in a culture, folks, where we want to give man glory constantly. God deserves all the glory. And here's the thing is, if you ever see me give glory, remind me I'm a waiter that's putting a meal on the table that the Lord has prepared. Man, that, that just bugs me when we see that because he gets the glory. You know, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand that we should walk in, Ephesians 2.10. He should get all the glory. We're, we're simply doing exactly what he told us to do, and that's our job. So let us do that. Jesus also walking in the midst of the lampstand. The lampstand represents the church. The church, the light that comes from a, a, a lampstand doesn't come from the lampstand itself, but it comes from the bowl that's filled with the oil that's lit. That's the church filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and we are to be as light in the world as we talked about last week. But what great comfort we have that he's walking in our midst. Jesus is here right now. He's walking in the midst of this lampstand. He's looking at our hearts. He knows everything about us we're going to see. He, he's loving on us. He knows where you are today. He knows whether you're in Christ or whether you're out of Christ. He knows whether you're struggling or where you're walking very strong in him. He knows everything about you. And he's just walking in our midst, loving on us, trying to speak to us, just tapping us on the shoulder, ministering to us. He's in our midst. I love that. The idea that he's here right now, ministering to us. John goes on here, and now he begins to pin what the commendation that the Lord has for this church in Ephesus. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those that are evil, and you have tested those who say that are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You've per persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But this, this you have that you, and also down to verse 6 actually, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus knows his bride better than she knows herself. He knows everything about his bride. He knows every flaw he knows every failure. He knows every victory. He knows every emotion. He knows every heart bent. He knows everything about us. And he's still here. And he still loves us. 
the idea that he knows is not the Greek word gnosko, that word is a progressive knowledge that is continually um, changing. It's a different Greek word, and it literally means that he knows completely and perfectly. There's not a single thing that Jesus doesn't know about you that will, has, or will continue to exist. He, he knows everything about you from the beginning to the end. Before you've even done it, he knows you better than he knows yourself. Then you know yourself. He's telling us here that he knows this church inside and out. He knows her work. He knows her labor. He knows her patience. He knows her intolerance for evil. The bride of Ephesus is a working church, folks. It's a church that's making impact in their community. This is a church that has, has um, put their hand to the plow and not looked back. This church is, is working. Ministry is work. It requires work. It requires labor. They're putting their blood, sweat, and tears into the community that they live in to make his name famous. They're doing everything that they can do to live for the Lord, to elevate his name, to give him glory, to make his name famous. They are resisting the culture that's trying to come into the church, and they, they, they literally are intolerant to evil. It sounds like a great church to be a part of. Sounds like you'd want to be part of that kind of, sounds like you'd want to be that kind of a church. And of course, that's just one side of it, isn't it? The Lord wants us to be working people. He wants to be laborers. He's looking for those kind of people to go into the world, to reap the harvest that exists, to be, you know, to, to be resilient against the, the culture that is around us that's constantly trying to drag us into it and woo us back into the lair of the devil. That's, what, that's what's happening in the culture. And this, this church is, is shielded from those things. They've shielded their hearts from those things. They also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are those guys? Perhaps it's one of the seven that was, that, uh, the, the dude that was laid hands on there in Acts chapter 6 where he was a waiter at the table. It could have been that guy. It could have been somebody else. But what we know about the, this, this kind of people, the, the Nicolaitans, people that followed this particular leader, they were immoral and debaucherous. That's what we know. That's about all we know. Jesus is proud of this church. He's proud of what they're doing. He's proud that they're standing for truth in a city full of lies. And he's proud that they are taking the word of God seriously. What do I mean? Well, you know, Paul came to the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and he told them what they ought to be aware of. He told them, he gave them a warning from the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 20, verses 27 through 32. This is literally the very first pastor's conference recorded in scriptures. He called the, the elders of Ephesus to Miletus, and he said in verse 27, 4, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul spent three years, set up a school of Tyrannus or at a, in a hall there in Ephesus, and he taught these guys the word of God. He taught it the way that it should be taught. He gave them the whole counsel of God. 
Verse 28, he gives them the warning now. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul took the leaders of this church and he, he poured into them and then he came back and he warned them about what they should be looking out for. The culture. Look out for the culture. Look out for people who are going to try and come in the church and try and bring a different message into the church. Also, watch out for the culture that exists in the church because there will be those who will rise up from within the church and will begin to speak another message too. You have to beware. Listen, folks, you cannot beware if you don't know the Word of God. That's why he said, first and foremost, I taught you the Word of God. You cannot know false doctrine. You cannot know false teaching or a false teacher, a false apostle, unless you know the Word of God. And how many times, you know, we've, we've said, well, you know, things like you just repeat stuff, you know? Like, man, God only helps those who help themselves, you know? You're like, really? That sounds good. I'm going to go with that. And then you say that to somebody else and they go, hold on a second. That's not right. The scripture says that God, God, helps, God, God helps those who need help and you need help. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. <laughs> he helps them even if they don't need help. He's, he's like drawing us constantly. You know, you know, like the other one that's like, you know, kill them all and let God sort them out. You know, those ones that are not in scripture, you know. You, you, you don't want to listen to those kinds of things. You don't know that that's not the Word of God unless you know the Word of God. And the only way to know the Word of God is to know the whole counsel of God. And the better you know the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, the better you will be able to uh, hear things and see things and determine whether, what spirit they are of. We're not to be people. God's people are not to be people that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Why? Because we have the completed um, word of God. We have the scriptures. He's given these to us. That's why he needs workers. He needs laborers, people that will dive into the word of God, that will receive from the word of God, that will make it their practice to be in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, to know the word of God so that they can, number one, protect themselves, but number two, be a protection to others. Be a Bible student. Make it, make your life about knowing the Word of God. It, you know, there's a, there's a saying that people, people that have the, I'm not even going to say it, but, because um, <laughs> I'll mess it up. Lives that are not falling apart belong to people whose Bibles are falling apart, something to that extent. It's true. The Word of God, verse by verse, systematically, consistently, line upon line, through the Word of God. It's not boring. It's important. 
And it doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. It needs to happen every day of the week. You pick a book of the Bible. You start reading the Bible. You just start reading it. Let the Lord speak to your heart. And you, as soon as you finish that book, you just move on to the next one. And you just keep going and going and going and going until you're finished. And then guess what? You start over. And you just keep doing that over and over and over again. That's the heritage of Calvary Chapel, actually. Is teaching the Bible verse by verse. Simply teaching the Bible simply. We read the lines. We read light upon line. We give some, some exegesis of the passage, some application. Then we move on to the next verse. It might not, you, you might not leave with, you know, three bullet points and a, you know, some goosebumps at the end of it. But you know what? You're, le you're learning. And that knowledge is going to help you as you move forward in life. Because guess what? Three, three points in a sermon that sound really cool and hip don't help me when I'm in the middle of the fire. But the Word of God just simply taught. God reminding me what He does through His Word and how He can help me. That, that sustains all things. Paul warned these guys that these things were going to happen, and they took it to heart. They were, they, were men and they were men of the Word, and they were steadfast in the Word, and it shows in their lives. They, were, they, they knew false doctrine. They were able to determine um, you know, what a false teacher was. They were able to ask the right questions to know where, uh, where these, whether these people were telling the truth or liars. Remember, they didn't have the full, complete scriptures like we do. We're even in a better situation than they are. But they were able to determine liars. They had the Holy Spirit, obviously. They were persevering in a... In a dude, they lived in a city that, uh, that hosted one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana which hosted a thousand prostitutes and the way that they would worship her was that the prostitutes would go into the city and that they would, they would end up, you know, laying with, with men and all this kind of stuff and that was an act of worship and you could see the licentiousness and all the debauchery that would happen in a situation like that. And this, this city was laden with that. They were up against it and yet they were steadfast. They were doing the right things, and Jesus calls them out. He says, man, I, I really commend you for the way that you're, you're standing firm in your faith. You're not growing weary in making the, the name of Jesus known. And so he encourages them in these ways. Notice what he doesn't say here. Stop doing that. Just stop doing that because I, I have something against you. No, he, he tells them what the issue is that he has against them, but they need to continue to do these things because they're the right things to do. They're just not doing it with the right heart. What do I mean? Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. So, if you visited the church at Ephesus for a moment, you, you might, you know, from the outside looking in, not really knowing a whole bunch about it, you might think like, wow, this church is really doctrinally on, man. I mean, these guys are solid. I mean, every conversation I had with people, people were giving me biblical answers and all these kinds of things. You know, it looked great. But Jesus now looks from the inside out. And, and, and that's, that's the, the vantage point that the Lord has uh, that oftentimes we don't, is he can see the heart of a person. He knows the why to the what. We can't fool him. 
We can fool everybody else in the world about why we're doing what we're doing, but we cannot fool Jesus. And so he does a deep dive into the heart, and now he says, here's, here's, there's a crack in your foundation, church. There's, there's, I have something against you. You have stopped operating in love. They've become a loveless church. Notice they didn't lose their love. They left it. They purposely stopped loving somewhere along the way. And it's a sad situation, but this is common. Commonplace, uh, you know, in the heart of man. Is that we can get to a place where we are going through the motions and it looks great, but the problem is we're not doing it with the right heart. And the Lord's not interested in people going through the motions. He wants a heart connection. He wants to be represented correctly. Not just theologically correctly. But he wants to be represented correctly all the way around. And that also includes the way that we minister, the why that we minister. We need to do all things in love, the Bible tells us. This church has become more like the Pharisees were in the land. And in fact, this is something that Israel struggled with big time is losing the heart behind the ministry. And in fact, the Lord, Jeremiah, writing in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, speaking to children of Israel, says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of the living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What is he saying? He's saying, the first step that they took is they took a step away from me. They left their first love. And then they created a religious system that is broken, that can't save people. And they presented it and said, here, here you go, guys. Get saved. You can't get saved in a situation like that. It's a sterile religious system that promises you eternity and cannot deliver. That's the reality. And Jesus is saying that this church is gravitating towards that line. They are, they are doing all the right things, but they're not doing them with the right motive. And so, well, you know, what can end up happening with that kind of, well, what will end up happening to a person or a church that's, that's in that situation is they will become dead. They will become dead. And it'll be, it's a dead system, therefore it will become a dead church either die on its own or Jesus will remove its lampstand like we'll see here in a minute. Charles Spurgeon comments in, in, in a system like this. He said, when love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness of light of love to Jesus depart. You see, you can have a a great system that is maybe theologically correct, but if it's missing love, it's going to be dead. And people notice that. You ever went into a loveless church before? You know, I, I, when I moved from Montana to Florida, as you know, some many of you guys have moved here looking for a church. It's perhaps one of the greatest trials a person can have when they're moving from one place to another. It's like, man, where am I going to go to church? You know, and, and, and obviously, you look for the church that you had, and you'll never find it. Right? They're unique. So we moved to Florida, and my wife and I were, went to 22 different churches. And we're thinking, like, 
is there something wrong with us? I mean, there, there, it can't possibly be 22 different churches that are just not right, you know? And, and so, you know, the Lord was moving us where he wanted us to go. I, I just think that in some, some respects, it wasn't necessarily the church. It just wasn't where we were supposed to be. But along our journeys of looking for a church, we, we went to this, this one church. I won't say what it were. It was a de denominational church, and the people were nice, and the, the sermons were good, and the worship was okay. And, you know, I mean, I, it seemed like, like we could get plugged into this church is what I'm saying. It's just, just like, but, I, but there was something in my heart. I'm just like, there, there's something missing here. I don't know what it is. And I, w I was actually a fairly new believer at the time, I'd only been a believer for maybe three years or something. And, uh, and we, 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 they were really like pushing membership, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And we're, my wife and I are looking for a church, and we're like, well, I mean, it seems okay. I don't, I don't know. It seems like it's, uh, you know, decent and everything. So we're like, well, hey, we talked to the pastor afterwards, and we're like, well, we're thinking of maybe that this might be our church home and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, oh, great, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we went home. And I remember the Lord telling me, Tim, didn't you see what was going on there? There's no love at this church. There's zero love. Love. Smiles. Lots of smiles. Lots of handshakes. And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of joy and all that kind of stuff. But there's no love. And when he spoke that to me, we went back the next week. And the Lord, you know, having that kind of impression in my heart... And I started to look around, and I thought, man, that is so true. And I started to just feel bad for these, this church because I'm thinking, like, man, they're missing lives invading our hearts is that we would love the way he loves. I thought, like, oh, man, I feel, I, I, I've been there. It seemed like everything else was great. They had a lot of great programs. <laughs> they had a lot, lot going on. It was a big church. But the love was, it wasn't there. And you guys know that. You've, you've probably experienced that. And, and the reality of it is, is, you know, I'm sure at some point that church if they're truly doing it in the heart of Jesus, the Lord won't allow a church to continue on if they're not loving the way they're called to love. It's so important. Paul said, said it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. You know the verses 1 through 3. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The text begs us to ask ourselves, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you sitting in the seat that you're sitting? Why are you serving in the capacity that you're serving? Why are you doing these things? What's motivating you? The horizontal, you're in the wrong place heart-wise, and you need to move to the right place. It needs to be because the Lord has positioned you and put you there, and His love is throwing, flowing through you. We need to do all things in love. 
The text is asking us, what is the motivation of our heart? Works will accompany a true Christian, but those works can sometimes become loveless, and that's what's happened. That. He doesn't want it to just continue on like it's not happening. And that's what I love about the Lord is he'll tell you. He'll just knock on your heart and he'll say, hey, that's you. You know, you need to reconnect your heart. And he doesn't leave us there, though. That's what's awesome. As he shows us how to move from being loveless in our actions to loving the way that we're called to love. And so he goes on here and gives the command to re re remember, repent. From where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus commands his loveless bride in Ephesus to remember, to repent, and to repeat. Jesus says, remember therefore where you have fallen. on the love that they once had. In and amongst their, it starts with the Lord. It's the love that they once had for him, which flowed to each other and then flowed outside into the, the community that they lived. He's saying, remember how that felt when everything you were doing had everything to do with him because you were loving him so hard that it, it didn't matter what else happened in your life because that... We, Remember that? Listen, here's a great catalyst. Here's a great litmus test for you. If you can think back to a moment when you've loved the Lord more than you do right now, where you've experienced, where you've loved other people more than you do right now, then perhaps the Lord's speaking to you to remember. But it doesn't stop there. He wants us to... That we're always supposed to be progressing, and if we're not, if we're staying the same or digressing, we're backsliding. And he wants us to, he doesn't want us to be in that place. He wants us to constantly be sanctified, to be changed, to be more like him. We should be loving people more today than we've ever loved them. We should be, you know, we should be experiencing or be displaying the love of Christ more than we ever have. And if we're not, then we need to take a deep dive into our heart. Not only to remember, but then we need to do something about it. We need to repent. That word literally means to turn the other way, 180 degrees, and go the direct opposite way you're going. And it involves uh, two things, really. It involves confession to God, saying, Lord, will you forgive me for, for turning my heart from you, for stopping, for leaving my love for you. And then For those people, will you help me to go the direct opposite way? That's repentance. That's what he wants from us. And here's the thing is, he's already taken that step towards you. He, you're not waiting for him to do anything. He's already done it. He's waiting on you. In fact, John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he loved first. 
He loved you first. And then he goes on to explain how that love brother, he's a liar. Whoa. For he who does not love his brother, whom he's seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So what John is telling us is, if we truly love God, and, and, you know, and then we will have a love for other people. Not, you know, there are some people that are kind of difficult to love, aren't they? And you know, you're like, I know exactly who you're talking about. I got them in my mind right now. person to somebody at some point the Lord loved you no matter what and I know that there are people that are different man and we just smile and I love you man not fake but Lord help me with my my lovelessness towards this person just like Lord help me with my unbelief I want to love help me to love and you know what I find he gives me the ability to the ability to do that in my, from, towards me. We're not all, we're, none of us are easy to love. Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Don't do that because you'll start a fight. And then, I, you know, you're like, Pastor Tim, you started all this, you know, kind of thing. But John goes on and he says in verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You must. Why? Because it's flowing through But it starts with him, and his arms are wide open, and they've been wide open. And maybe you started out that way. You're just loving freely, and, you know, it didn't matter what people did. The circumstances were just rolled off your back because you were being so in love with the Lord that it didn't matter. But now you're not like that. You're saying, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you cleanse my heart this morning for, for not loving the way that I'm supposed to love? Will you restore the love that I had for you once? Will you help me to get back to that place where nothing in this world matters and I just love just our relationship and then that just flows out onto other people and I just love people? Will you help me? Man, I, I, and I'll tell you firsthand, I need to repent today. As I was going through this, I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, Lord. I can remember a moment in my heart where I was living in Florida and I was driving down the road and the Lord was just doing an incredible work in my life. And he was just like, oh, you know, I want you to see. And I'm praying, Lord, will you show me how you see people? Will you help me to see people the way you see them? And, and I was driving down the road, and I remember the guy in front of me driving in his car. He, uh, he took like a makeshift pot pipe with a can, you know, and they, they put the, well, I don't know how to, well, you know. <laughs> I do know how to do it, but... So he's got this can, and he's got the dope in there, and he's like at a stoplight looking around, and I'm, I'm behind him. I see everything this guy's doing. He's all like, oh, you know, and I'm just like, and, the, and I'm literally, no joke, I start crying. And I'm like, what in the world, Lord? Why am I crying, man? And, and the Lord, and, and just this thought came in my mind, his life is that bad that he's got to smoke dope before he goes to work or whatever the case might be. And it's just like the Lord just flowing through me, like helping me to see the way he sees it. And that's what he wants for us. 
You know that? He wants us to go out here and see LBGTQ flags, and he wants us to be broken over those people. And he wants, to, wants us to love on those people, those people who don't know who they are, and they're calling themselves all kinds of different things. He doesn't want us to complain about them. He wants us to love them. You can't love them unless you have that kind of love flowing down from you. And that's the world we live in, folks. So the question is, you ask yourself today, what am I doing? Where am I at? What? I'm in love and I love it. I don't even know it. Is that what's up there? <laughs> that's how we're supposed to love. Literally repeat your first works. Do you remember those moments? Like Elf? You know, he's like the first time he's ever really experienced love, and he's like, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't even know it. Or I, I don't care who knows it or whatever. And you're like, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. The sad thing is if we're not experiencing that today, we have to ask ourselves what's going on in our heart. You know? The Bible promises us that the love of many will grow cold in the last, mo in the last days. Guess what? It's the last days. And the love of many is growing cold. Don't let that be said of you. Remember where you fell. Repent and return and do those first works, whatever those were. You know, but the, 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 the formula really starts with you returning to the Lord and in that repentance, and then he takes care of everything else. But only you can do that. And so you ask yourself this morning, Lord, am I, am I, do, do I need to do that? Well, let's take a little test. See if you can insert your name in this, 1 Corinthians 13. Tim is patient and kind. Tim does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He's not insist on bearing all things, or does insist on his own way. He's not irritable mm -mm, or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Tim bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Can you put your name in there today? He didn't, he didn't put that in there like that was pie in the sky. Like there's no way we could attain that. The Lord doesn't do that. He floods us with his spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is love. You can put your name in there if you're walking in the Spirit, but the question is, are you walking in the Spirit? I'm thankful that the Lord gives us a remedy for the correction that we need, and He tells us exactly what we need to do. Not only that, He doesn't stop there, though. Then He gives a conditional promise. Here in verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I assume you don't need to hear me talk about to him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. But he says, here's the conditional promise for you to the one who overcomes. You're going you're gonna to be given to eat from the tree of life. What is the tree of life? Remember, he's drawing us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We're Adam and Eve. We're walking with the Lord. 
and physically with the Lord in that garden. They were having a great relationship. But when the fell happened, the Lord said, dude, I got to get these guys out of here lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. He wants to give you eternity. He wants you to be able to go up to that tree and eat from, that, eat from the fruit of that tree. He wants to give that to you. And he will give that to you, but it's conditional, isn't it? It's a conditional promise. Not, listen, we're not born Christians. There is no, you have to be born again Christian. It's a conditional clause. Eternity is a conditional clause, folks. God promises us salvation, but we have to do something. We have to come to him. And we have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, what's interesting about it is repentance is the exact same way. We come back to the cross. We come back to grace, by grace through faith. And we ask the Lord to do the work in our heart. It's never really our ability to do that work. But God gives us the ability to do that work. But understand, it's conditional. You have to take the step. You have to come to him. And that's how we overcome, is by coming to Jesus Christ, believing on Jesus Christ. The word overcome there in the Greek is nikeo, which was where we get the word Nike. And it means victory. He wants you to be victorious. He wants you to, how do we overcome? How, are we, how can we believe? How can we, be, how can we overcome? We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You've got to be born again. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who it is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you do it? Believing in Jesus Christ. He told us he overcame the world in John 16, 3. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we can overcome the world in belief in Jesus Christ. And of course, there's Revelation 12, 11 that says, And they have conquered him who is speaking about Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even under death. Speaking of the martyrs in the tribulation period. How are they going to overcome the enemy and all that's going on during that time? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Listen, you can overcome this morning, but you've got to put your faith in Jesus. And maybe you said, well, I've already done that. Well, maybe you need to recommit your heart to Jesus. Is there need to be change in your life today? The Lord has given you a conditional promise. That you can eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. But he said, if you don't do it, I'm going to remove the lamp. I'm going to remove the lampstand. What does that mean? He'll just kill the church. He's not going to let a church that's not operating correctly continue to go on. Do you know how many churches close in a year? And it's not necessarily because of that. But a lot of churches close every year, man. They tons, of, tons of good churches close. You know, and it's for various reasons. But here's what I know. Jesus is telling this church, when you stop loving, I'm going to give you an opportunity and a time frame to repent and return. And if you don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill the church because I don't want that church representing me. Because they'll do it wrong and then people have the wrong impression of me. And here's what happened. 200 A.D., 
the church's the, the, the city of Ephesus is just totally demolished and it's still that way today. This church doesn't exist. But it does exist spiritually in our hearts and the Lord is saying the same thing to them, to us that he's saying to them this morning. Are you this church? Do you have, are you spiritual Ephesus today? Have you left your first love? The Lord's calling you back. He wants to bless you and he wants to minister to you. Don't be the loveless bride. Go back, return. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we ask you, Lord, to change our hearts. We thank you that, that you're a good God and that you give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to get our hearts right with you. We ask now, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit as we close the service, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to ask ourselves the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I abiding by a sterile religious system of rules, trying to represent Jesus in this world without love? Or am I right where I need to be, doing exactly what I'm supposed to be to do? Lord, you know. And we pray this morning that you would move in our hearts and speak directly to us on how we ought to respond this morning. You gave us a remedy if we're loveless people, Lord, that we are called to remember, to repent, and then to return to our first works. And so we ask you this morning to do that in our hearts, in the quietness of our hearts. We're not going to call people to their feet today. We're going to just ask you to move in the midst of this place right now. that your spirit would lead us to respond however it is that we're, you would tell us to. If that's to come to the altar, Lord, then, then Lord, give us the boldness to do it. That's to pray with one of these people that will be up front, Lord. It's for me to be prostrate before you, Lord. Prostrate before you. Lord, we, we just want to be real with you even right now. We ask you to just move by your spirit. We thank you for who you are. Just draw our hearts to, to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.